0: Five Desert Island albums. What are your five albums if you were stuck on a desert island you would miss so much? Five albums you just can't live without? That's a tough question.
1: But I would say Live at Fillmore East by Ullman Brothers Band, Nothing's Shocking by Jane's Addiction, Chaining the Catechon by Despel Omega, Spiritual Unity by Albert Taylor, and Ryo Sebai by no Otome.
0: Damn man, what list? Hi and welcome to this week's episode of the Thinking Global Podcast. My name is Kirin O'Meara, and I'm going to be your host. And today, I'm so lucky to be joined by Eduardo Pieroni as my co host. Eduardo Pieroni is Deputy Articles Editor for e International Relations. He holds a master's degree in Japanese Studies and in International Relations, and plans to pursue a PhD in the future. He is interested in multidisciplinary, theoretical research, and all things esoteric. And if I may say, has absolutely
1: amazing musical taste. <laughs> Hi, Ed. Hello, I'm Eduardo Pieroni.
0: In this episode, Eduardo and I are going to be in conversation with Professor Wendy Brown. Big, big name. (laughs) We're going to begin this discussion by talking with Professor Brown about Nihilistic Times, Professor Brown's new book, Thinking with Max Weber, which is available from all good book retailers. Professor Wendy Brown is Professor Emerita in the Department of Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Brown's fields of interest include the history of political theory, feminist theory, contemporary critical theories of law, 19th and 20th century continental theory, and contemporary American culture. She's best known for intertwining the insights of Marx, Nietzsche, Weber, Freud, Frankfurt School theorists, Foucault, and contemporary continental philosophers in order to critically interrogate formations of power, political identity, citizenship, and political subjectivity in contemporary liberal democracies. Her works include Regulating Aversion, States of Injury, Walled States' Waning Sovereignty, Undoing the Demos*, and In the Ruins of Neoliberalism. Professor Brown is also here to talk about their latest work, Nihilistic Times, Thinking with Max Weber. Okay, Eduardo, I think this is going to be a good one. Let's roll. Hello, Professor Brown. Thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast today. I have to say I'm a huge fan, so thank you ever so much for coming on.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So my first question is, in your new book, Nihilistic Times, you speak about nihilism as the condition of the contemporary era both politically and epistemologically. Starting with the latter, can you flesh this out a little bit more for our listeners with maybe an example or two?
2: I'd be glad to. Uh, let's start with the common, commonplace way of understanding nihilism so we can set it aside. I, I think that the most familiar way that nihilism operates in culture today is really through the figure of punk, or perhaps a little bit before punk through the figure of the the young person filled with ennui and a sense of pointlessness in life where nothing means anything, nothing has purpose, and nothing is worth doing. And that is certainly one iteration of nihilism. The tradition I'm about to talk about would treat it more as a symptom than as the, the basic framework of nihilism. So I mention it so that we can bracket it for the moment to go to this other tradition of nihilism that I think is, is helpful in illuminating some features of our contemporary predicaments. This older tradition, really the one that we associate with figures like Nietzsche, um, certainly Weber, whom I deal with in this text, but also the Russian existentialist, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, others, treat nihilism as really emerging from the moment that the enlightenment begins to challenge the authority of God and tradition with reason and science. So why is that nihilism? The problem here, and I'll just describe it in in broad general terms, is that once science, reason, enlightenment principles generally, claim the mantle of truth, they are displacing the authority of God and tradition with these other things. But at the same time, they're giving us truths, as it were, truths about how things work, truths about um, the nature of the universe, scientific truths that don't, at the same time, give us meaning or value. That is, what science delivers, as Nietzsche and Weber both tell us, is an explanation of the mechanics of things, but not how we should value them. So we may well know, to go to a very contemporary example, that carbon emissions are threatening all planetary life on the Earth and the very future of a habitable planet for much of uh, the species that currently inhabit the Earth. But that doesn't tell us whether or not that's a terrible thing. You have to go to the question of value. You have to go to the question of meaning to be able to make that judgment. So nihilism in this tradition is a world increasingly void of settled meaning and settled value, even as we have more and more capacity through knowledge, through science, through reason, through technology built on it, to be able to invent power in the world, but less and less through those same powers, capacity to be able to decide what things mean or how to value them. That's the problem. Of nihilism that that we get from this tradition, and one of its most important implications is not just that we no longer have a settled ground for value, a settled source of value in the gods or in nature or in natural law, but the very value of value declines. Meaning, we we still have values; they're still around; they haven't vanished from the world, but once they're deracinated. once we've we've lost uh, the sense of them as absolutely true with a capital T and having absolute authority to govern all aspects of life, once we lose that, values themselves begin to cheapen. They become trivial. They become easily instrumentalized. And today we see that in the way that, for example, values are used for every kind of branding but also other forms of power like political power, and here I have in mind not just the, the kind of cheap way that somebody like Trump deploys so-called traditional or conservative values that we know he doesn't actually adhere to, not just that he doesn't live by, but we know he doesn't really believe them, but he understood the power of that brand to mobilize a base. So that's one important effect that values become trivial, instrumentalized, wielded, mobilized for all kinds of purposes um, that further cheapen them. But another effect is what Weber understood as the hyper politicization of everything. Everything uh, as as boundaries um, erode under under a nihilistic condition, you also get politics spilling into more and more spheres of life. And again, we see this today where Everything from consumption to style of dress to everything else has particular political significance, but it's really cheap political significance. It's not deep, it's cheap. So you get a hyper politicization of everything. And at the same time, a kind of archness. And I I guess the best way to put it would be a a, a kind of demagogic quality uh, to politics itself. And then finally, one more effect of this condition that we need before us in order to be able to talk further about why I would bother with Weber and thinking about this. Um, One more effect of of the decline of value, um, the devaluation of value and including the value of truth is disinhibition, widespread disinhibition. What do I mean? Well when when the value of values declines, their restraining effect on our conduct is also loosened. So here we're kind of conjoining a Freudian understanding and a Nietzschean understanding of the power of conscience as bound to a certain kind of moral order of things, when that moral order begins to loosen, when it begins to wobble because values have been deracinated, because because their own standing is increasingly cheapened and and proliferated, their restraining effect on us also declines. So, disinhibition, which we see everywhere (laughs) today, is yet another effect.
0: Okay, interesting, I wanna push a little bit on that. In nihilistic times, the central figure you think and stroll with, if I can say that, almost as a sort of spiritual parallel to Dante's Virgil, is Max Weber. Why is Weber so significant to thinking about this contemporary condition of nihilism?
2: The quick answer to your question is that Weber's own concern with nihilism was in two areas that matter a lot to me and I think to most of us who are students or scholars of politics, namely nihilism's effects on knowledge and nihilism's effects on politics. So Weber's significant because these were his twin loves, his twin foci. And in the book that we're talking about, he really opens this terrain up in his two famous lectures, one on politics as a vocation, and one on knowledge or science as a vocation. He sets these up as opposites, knowledge and politics, and in part, he sets them up as opposites in his own effort to plot a way through nihilistic effects to recover the dignity, the power, and the potential of both the domain of knowledge and the domain of politics. So for him, keeping these two domains apart and understanding their differences is part of treating the boundary breakdown that nihilism introduces and the the pluralization or proliferation of values that it produces. And the loss of accountability, responsibility, and seriousness in politics that he thinks it produces. Now that said, um, the only thing I'd quarrel with in your question is that I stroll with Weber. I I would actually say I wrestle with Weber Um, because while Weber sets out a lot of the framework and the problematic of thinking about nihilism in knowledge and politics, he comes to what for me are very unsatisfying conclusions in both domains. He's famous for having established a fact value distinction in knowledge where he insists that facts actually can be analyzed separately from values and that they're two entirely different orders of thinking and of human inquiry or human deliberation. And in the political domain, he largely gives up on substantive democracy. He says the best we can hope for is plebiscitory democracy. He gives up on political mobilization from below. And he's basically engaged in politics as a vocation in a kind of anti revolutionary rant, recentering politics in state centric and fairly um, conservative orientations toward political possibilities. So I wrestle with Weber because on the one hand, I think he's done an extraordinary job of unfolding the predicaments of nihilism in both spheres, Um, but then comes to very uh, conservative or problematic for me, just untenable ways of plotting our way through with one exception, the fundamental way through Nihilism for Weber involves reckoning with the fact that values are made, not discovered. That they are human inventions, not delivered from the gods or from nature. That they are not simply there um, either to be obtained by philosophical inquiry or uh, by religious devotion but rather that human beings make the meanings and make the values by which we live. And I think what's so fundamental about this, what's so important about this insistence that, that, that Weber gives us that this is what we must teach students, that, that values are all important, but human made, and that the domain of struggle over values is the political realm, that that's fundamentally what politics ought to be about, and um, fundamentally what gives somebody a vocation for politics is that they have a deep set of values, something they really do believe ought to govern in the world and are willing to responsibly struggle for them. Why this is important is that for Weber, if if we don't reckon with that, if we don't accept that values are all important and yet human made, we will remain unfree. We'll we'll remain in the world of of nihilistic storms or predicaments and we'll remain unfree because we will be ruled by forms of power and forms of rationality that, that simply reduce us and submit us to their machineries without us trying to govern them by the values by which we think the world ought to be governed.
0: (laughs) Okay, maybe I was strolling with you wrestling with Weber. (laughs) On a different note, I'd like to turn to one of your earlier works, my favourite work. (laughs) In Walled States' Waning Sovereignty, you speak about how the construction of walls, such as the US-Mexico border wall or the Israeli West Bank barriers, are symptomatic of post-Westphalian sovereignty. Would you be able to unpack that for us a little bit, please?
2: Sure, it's been a while. I think I wrote that book in 2010 and so much has happened in the past 14 years. Um, But let me try to take us back to that period. And I say that on purpose because I think it's very tempting to refract the problem of walling through recent right-wing campaigns in Europe and in the U.S., or through the rise of the right in, say, Modi's India or Erdogan's Turkey. And I want us to go back a little further to remember that what happened in the in the post-89 period around the world was just a frenzy of wall building. So what was also happening in this period was, of course, globalization, or what we now pretty much conventionally call neoliberal globalization, the opening of nation states to worldwide trafficking in capital, labor, production, supply chains, finance, ideas, people, et cetera. And the conventional way of understanding that period, that post-89, or let's just call it, um, you know, the period of the 80s and the 90s, is that this Uh, globalization was accompanied by heightened securitization. And so walling would be part of that second move, that that you get heightened securitization as you get all of these openings. Um, And then more recently, you get the idea that you get heightened nationalism as a counter to, to neoliberal globalization, and that that's how to understand Brexit and Modi and Erdogan and Le Pen and Trump and so forth is the is the calling to slam the door back shut after, after globalization has done its, its work. My argument is different from all of these. In the Walls book, what I want to do is consider Walling as part of the erosions of sovereignty that have long been coming in the 20th century, but are put on steroids by neoliberalism. And that means I want to think about border fortifications and walling and what will later become kind of reassertion of nationalism as as symbols or effects or signs of weakened sovereignty, permanently weakened sovereignty, or what I call the transition or the interregnum between a Westphalian order and whatever comes next. So why this counterintuitive thesis? Well, two things. First of all, I want to just say fortifications, any kind of fortifications, any kind of defenses are what you build in distress, not in confidence, not, not, not when you have settled authority, settled sovereignty. And I think it's really important to remember that instead of seeing these fortifications as themselves expressions of sovereignty to see them as, as distressed sovereignty. More importantly, so much of the wall building in the post-89 period. And the reason I keep going back to 89 is that, you know, that's of course when the Berlin Wall fell and and it was supposed to be the era of the end of walling, and instead it was the opposite. But much of the wall building in this period was was highly theatrical, meaning expensive and politically potent in certain ways, but absolutely ineffective vis-a-vis the ostensible aims that it had, whether that was to interdict migrants, or guns, or terror, or drugs, or a range of other things. Now, I'm not the first person to make this point. Most serious scholars of Walls and Borders make it. What all I did was tie the the theatricality of wall building and border fortification to this more general phenomenon of declining sovereignty. So if walls don't really work, if they don't really interdict their ostensible targets, migrants, guns, drugs, terror, et cetera, what are they doing? And the argument is just they're asserting sovereignty that's declining, that's faltering, that's weak, that's eroded. They are not actually achieving that sovereignty. They're theatrically performing it in its absence. They're also addressing a domestic political problem by creating new identities, the us inside, the them outside, even while those identities don't map on to the actual way that capital, that labor, that production, that finance, that climate change, that all the major powers in the world are operating. They're operating across boundaries, but the walling, the border fortification produces political identities um, that as it were, belie this or solve a particular domestic problem. And of course, they do it right when we need a global commons. So they also produce a new mess.
0: Before you joined us, Wado and I were having a discussion about what our five desert island albums would be. If you were stuck on a desert island and you could only pick five albums, what would they be? (laughs) It's a random question, I know.
2: I don't know about albums, but I'll, I'll tell you that I would find it very hard to keep going in the universe without John Coltrane and Miles Davis. And at certain moments, I would also really hope I could have... Access to Aretha Franklin and Janice Joplin. And then I have to say, my son's music, because he's a musician, would also give me great comfort. So the music of Isaac Butler Brown. Awesome.
1: One of your most famous articles concerned resisting left melancholia. 24 years later, do you feel that the fortunes and sentiments of the left, or whatever the label means, have changed in any way?
2: Sure. It would be terrible if I didn't. Otherwise, I'd be engaged in, in, in left melancholia. Um, I think um, the left in the Euro-Atlantic world, let's just start there, is, is quite different than when I wrote that piece a quarter century ago. I was reflecting on the, on the tremendous defeat of the left in, in the latter part of the 20th century, um, and the melancholia that was one of the signature affects of that defeat. But the left has, has risen, if we want to put it that way, in the last decade and a half, all over the place. Uh, in the Euro-Atlantic world, it's mostly been uh, the, the work of, of youth-led movements, um, as well as movements by migrants, by refugees, by people of color, of all ages, and various kinds of climate activist mobilizations. So the left you know, has a tremendous amount of energy, even if it's a non-unified energy. Um, it has. It has also been spurred by the rise of the right. Of course, this means the mainstream, the centrists, always want the left to come back to the center uh, to fight the right. But we on the left won't go there because that center is so fully occupied by neoliberals and and by and by. I want to say an an indifference to to both the long plagues of colonialism and other forms of racial supremacy and and also um, to what I think is a relative calm about the climate emergency when that calm really can't be afforded. But my general point is the left is not best described I think as melancholic today. Uh, It's active, it's insistent that it alone can give um, planetary life a future. That said, I think there are some pieces of the left that cling to pasts in problematic ways. Um, One of these has to do with clinging to notions of labor as being at the heart of left struggle. And I don't wanna dismiss labor, very important, but it is no longer the exclusive determinant of class. All the work that people have done on financialization and the asset economy should should put that notion to rest. And class in turn is no longer the determinant of all that we need to include on the left. So I, I worry a bit about that persistent attachment and related to it, any kind of attachment to the idea of worldwide armed revolution. Uh, That's not the way things are gonna roll in this century. Um, And I I worry a little bit about a left melancholia, if we can use the term still for for a social democracy that will somehow turn automatically towards socialism. This is, uh, I think, particularly a problem in my country, in the US, where there's not a lot of historical consciousness or knowledge in this domain and and understanding all the ways that um, social democracy does not necessarily roll in that direction. But I, I think we can say that that was the kind of fantasy in some of the Bernie Sanders campaign and continues to be the fantasy of some of the democratic socialist left, of which I'm a part and um, will defend in other quarters. But but here we're talking about melancholia. So, I you know, I think there are some attachments that we need to get our little fingers ungripped un- from in order to confront the unique challenges of our time with vocabularies and concepts and categories that are apt to it, including the imbrication of the human with the non-human. And obviously, the climate activist left is pretty good at that. But other parts of the left, maybe not so much.
1: Okay, so let us turn to neoliberalism for a minute. A key theme of your work, be it in undoing the demos or regulating aversion, is the concretization of neoliberalism. How do you understand the contemporary character of neoliberalism and how does that relate back to the nihilistic condition you spoke about earlier?
2: I try to uh, think about neoliberalism not simply as a set of concrete policies with which we're all familiar, dismantling of the social state, replacement of progressive with flat or regressive taxation, deregulation, uh, all of which eventually gives way or produces as an accidental effect as well, um, financialization, all of that is part of neoliberalism, but my particular interest in it is um, developed from Foucault's understanding of neoliberalism as a, as a form of political rationality, a form of political reason, and a form of reason that saturates everything, every institution, profit and nonprofit, forms of governing, states, subjects, schooling, et cetera. Um, This has become commonplace at this point. I don't feel like my thesis is so radical anymore. I think we've all pretty much grasped that uh, this is the way of it. The only difficulty in grasping it is that it's so saturating that it's often difficult for young people very young people to know that the world was ever otherwise that that market values and the question of capital enhancement and capital valuation whether human capital or social capital or or capital of the monetary or financial or productive sort that 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 was not the only uh index of life so on the one hand, it's very obvious now that 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 this is the world uh, that we have, um, even as there has been some pushback, uh, not really since the financial crisis, but really since um, I would say uh, in the in it took a while after the financial crisis uh, for that pushback to begin developing. but Even with the pushback, um, state intervention or re-regulation or efforts at reinstalling some minimal kinds of social or public services have still operated very much within a neoliberal frame, often public-private partnerships with the privates pulling the strings, often through um, uh, uh, budgets and, and deals that still center the question of profit, of growth, um, of, of shareholder value, as well as um, other associated kinds of, of concerns. So let's just put it this way. Uh, we still are largely governed in everything, whether it's higher education or um, delivery of healthcare or uh, production of housing by um, market values and market metrics that neoliberalism rolled out for everything and everyone. How does this intersect nihilism? Well, when the only value is profit growth, price, or capital enhancement, have we decided on that as the value by which the world should run? Or are we under uh, in, a, in a condition in which the values of, of um, a market system, let's put it really crudely, <laughs> the, the, the values of, of um, this iteration of capitalism govern, and then we imagine that they are our own? Well, obviously, my own view runs toward the latter. I don't think that if one is simply um, trying to figure out how to make something um, profitable or capital enhancing and prevent depreciation of value, whether it's a person, uh, a young student, uh, a nonprofit uh, endeavor, healthcare delivery, or something else, if one is simply hewing to those, those concerns, I don't think we're really deciding how should we live? Who should get what? How should we organize the world such that we can sustain the present and the future in a way that we consider just, viable, decent, ethical, etc. So I would say the intersection of of a neoliberal rationality with nihilism is both that it intensifies that nihilism because it, it... It basically is a form of rationality that says there is no other value. The only value there is are these market values. And at the same time, it's a set of practices in which we have surrendered human governing, human decisions, human thought and consideration about what matters to market forces we've we've it's basically the kind of final step in nihilism where we say uh, let this other thing decide we give up and and that's one way to read neoliberalism
0: okay so professor brown i have some questions that i ask everyone that comes on the podcast and the first of these is what is it to think globally for you
2: Mm, such a wonderful question I would say the most important thing about thinking globally is any time one thinks a thought to ask where one is thinking it from. And that means when I start working on a problem, whether it's the climate crisis or questions of of, uh, race class equality or reparations, am I thinking about it from within my tiny provincial world called the United States, or not. So to think globally is actually to constantly be thinking against oneself.
0: You know, we've been doing this a little while now, and you get a different answer every single time. I bet. Okay, so my very last question for you, Professor Brown, is who would you recommend for our listeners to read?
2: Wow. Here's the difficulty. I'm I'm thinking completely different subjects now. So um, my reading is all in climate crisis stuff. People I've been reading lately that have been really turning my world a little bit include the anthropologist Annette Singh. Uh, people know her work, The Mushroom at the End of the World, but she's done more recent work that I think is even more amazing. I've also been thinking with Amitav Ghosh, the novelist who's also engaged by uh, the climate emergency. And um, I've gone back a bit to Bruno Latour, not because I think he gets everything right, but because I think he was prescient in understanding just how much disruption of our received epistemologies and political conceptual categories uh, the climate crisis produces. You know, I always go back to Foucault and Marx.
0: There we go. What a list. (laughs) Okay, Professor Brown, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. It really has been a delightful pleasure. Thank you ever so much for coming on.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: God, that was amazing. (laughs) That was so fascinating, right? Okay, Eduardo, hit me with your thoughts immediately.
1: Go. Professor Brown emphasized how the forces of neoliberalism tend to shape an nihilistic world by trivializing values and disconnecting us from direct experience. So we got to get back to feeling the world and create new values by which we can live our political life.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That was just exceptionally good, exceptionally interesting. I feel so privileged (laughs) to have been part of this discussion. Okay, before we leave you, I would like to ask you to click on that little like, share, subscribe, or follow button. It would mean the world to us. It would make my day. I sound like Clint Eastwood's weirder English cousin. Go on, make my day. <laughs> That's <was> too happy. <laughs> Also, don't forget that Thinking Global is part of e-International Relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations. If you haven't already gone over to e-International Relations, go check it out. There is literally tons of content of up-to-date articles by scholars and practitioners of international relations talking about international politics. You can find that at e-ir.info or you can click on the link in the description box. This episode was brought to you by a number of people, I'd like to give a very special shout out to Colleen Lannick at Harvard University Press, without whom this particular episode probably would not have taken place. (laughs) Thank you ever so much, Colleen, you are amazing. (laughs) I'd also like to give a massive shout out to the rest of the International Relations podcast team. So massive thanks to Ismail Aden, Edward Curry, to Shara Decker, Abigail Glynn, and Nigel Huckle. Thanks ever so much, guys. You are amazing as always. And I'd like to give a big thanks to Eduardo Pieroni, my co-host today, without whom this episode would not have taken place, and his music taste because it's phenomenal. <laughs> music was also by Material Music. I would also like to remind listeners that Professor Brown's new book, Nihilistic Times, that we were speaking about today, is available from all good book retailers. So, I suppose the only thing left to say is that I've been Kieran O'Meara.
1: I've been Eduardo Pieroni, And we've been Thinking Thinking
2: Global.
0: Thanks, guys. Okay, so what if you had ten Desert Island discs? What would you
1: go for then?